Henson. I'm here on Game Changers. And for some reason, I'm opening the show because uh, Vicky's somewhere. She's doing some housekeeping or I don't know. But anyway, uh, I'm excited to be here. Uh, it sounds like I'm interviewing Vicky for the show. So, uh, <laughs> but I'm excited to be here. And uh, I've seen the list of guests that have been on this show and uh, flattered and honored to be here. Oh, wait, okay. here she is. So here I am. So Steve Ferroni oh, is done talking. You know, because for some reason, every time I take us live, Steve Ferroni's talking. And wow. I don't know why that is. That sounds it's like bad. Steve to me. So it sounds so, like the Steve I know. CJ, I'm, you know, we met at Nicole Venables yeah. uh, getting our hair dressed uh, right before <laughs> I was going to Europe and you were off somewhere too. And uh, it was mad love at first sight. Um, it was because, because you we have all these mutual friends, and I'm so excited to hear a bit more about you. I've 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 done my homework. I've learned a little bit, but so oh. so yeah, I have. And your career is crazy. You have played with so many of my heroes that. Okay, so it starts in Denver. I lived in Denver for a little while. Ah, so interesting. Are you a prodigy? What What's the deal with you? Uh, I guess I was. I mean, I, first piano lesson, I 10 minutes into it, they pulled my mom, the teacher pulled my mom aside and into the other room and said, this boy needs to be in a special school. This, yeah, this is. And how old were you when this happened? Probably seven. Wow. And yeah. had you been fooling around on your own? Were you? Yeah. Yeah. There's a picture of my brother. And first of all, I should tell you, my father. Uh, who passed away two years ago was one of the finest piano players you've ever heard in your life. And everybody says, yeah, my dad's, I'm telling you, Al Schmidt recorded my dad. He thought he was doing wow. a charity. He thought he was doing a charity for my dad. Yeah. And, and I said, I said, you're going to, you're going to be, you're going to be fucking, fucking crying in about two minutes. And Al started crying. He goes, your dad's one of the best piano. He goes, I love you, but you're not a hair on your dad's ass. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my dad was fabulous. Oh, see now it's doing it again. We're being invaded by Steve Ferroni. He's such an attention, you know. He has to have the. What is that? Oh, see, he's a. That's all right. We can keep. I'll keep telling the story. So, uh, my father was an amazing piano player. Uh, he was the best player in the state when he was eighteen. I was born when he was. 20 i believe was Very your father young. a professional oh yeah oh yeah he was he played all over and uh my mother my father was an orphan so we don't know his lineage but uh my mother's side is all music all the way back piano players so both sides had music wow. and it was a very kind of shining kind of thing my great grandmother played piano in the, in the same church for 75 years uh she would wow get in her buggy and then ride cross country in Michigan and wait, stay overnight at somebody's house, get up in the morning, give a piano lesson, ride three or four hours to the next house, stay overnight, give a piano lesson. And then she'd get back on Saturday and that'd be the wait, day. Wait, she day. was literally riding in a buggy? Yeah, with horse, horse and buggy. Yeah, my great grandma. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this probably would have been in the 20s, you know. What, and, and your mom was a pianist as well? She plays. She was a, an accordionist, but uh, but it was all musicians all the way all the way back on both sides. Now my dad, my parents split when I was four. We lived in Denver. I don't want to go too long on this, but we lived in Denver, and I had uh, I cried for the first eight months of my life 
and I was turning blue. Because... And I, know I, I had a heart defect. So the only hospital they they performed the surgery was back in Michigan, where they had come from, coincidentally. So we moved back there to get my heart surgery, which they didn't think I would make it through. It was experimental then. And wow. eight months old, uh, I got it fixed and, you know, no problems there. I have no heart problems. Everything's fine now. But that was kind of a weird start, <laughs> you know, Hell yeah. weird start there. So my parents got divorced when I was four. My father moved about an hour away above a nightclub. So I started hanging out every other weekend with my father above this jazz nightclub with all the cats coming upstairs. And I'm four years old and I'm just watching the way they talk to each other. So even more than the music, because that was already my, in my DNA, because there were records spinning all the time at both households. And what kind, uh, of, what kind of music are your parents listening everything, to? Everything, everything. I mean, my, my mom was more eclectic than my dad, actually. She listened to Ray Charles and Charlie Pride and... Uh, 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 there was some uh, choir stuff, uh, folk stuff. I mean, when I did A Mighty Wind, I knew exactly what to do because I grew up hearing that in the house, you know. Oh, my God. But my dad was pretty, pretty straight jazz. You know, it was, a, it was, this would have been 1962 and bebop was really hitting hard and Miles was doing great stuff. So anyway, and was jazz, jazz your thing when you started? No, no, no. I got started with the the funny old duck and the, you know those stupid stuff they teach in piano lessons. I was really bored. It wasn't until <laughs> I really it wasn't until I started smoking weed that I figured out I got to learn some Rolling Stones, Angie, and uh, Long Cool Woman with the Black Dress. And I started learning stuff by ear. Then I started studying classical. And I think the first year I was the first one in the recital book. And then the second year I was on the first one on the second page. And then third year I was the the last guy every year so I did that for about five years anyway but I wanted to tell you about going to visit my dad right he, he would go downstairs to play a set with his trio the Paul Vanston trio and uh he just locked me in the apartment like if you did that today there'd be a helicopter and you know child services and SWAT team outfits <laughs> right you know what I'm saying he and, locked you in the apartment yeah yeah and I and, but I just laid I laid on the floor listening to I just was inhaling all that music. Then the break would happen. Boom, the door would open. All the cats would come in and <laughs> hang out. And I just would look up and I loved the way they talked to each other. Mm -hmm. I saw the way insurance guys talk to each other, business guys, but these are like, hey, baby, yo, cat, how you been? <laughs> yeah, all right. I'm like, these, these guys are different than everybody else, you know? And Stan Kenton used to uh, love my dad's plan. He was a, a legendary big band leader. And he had this schlock, sh shock, shock of, not schlock, shock of white hair. On break, Stan Kenton shows up with his band guys. They had played a gig. They're in their like beautiful suits and everything. And I looked at him and I looked over and there's the album sitting there with his picture. And I'm looking back and forth going, this is the first celebrity I've ever seen. And, you know. And then I watched him. I thought, wait, this is bullshit. If these guys are so successful, why can't they afford their own cigarette? <laughs> I was four years old and they're smoking weed. I'm watching them smoke weed. Going, oh. this is bullshit. So one one guy one guy brought a bit a brick of uh, a weed and back then it was like heroin. My dad freaked out. He said, "Put that away." He goes, "Where should I put it?" He goes, "Put it in the oven. That's where the cops will never look there." So they go down to play the set, lock me in the <laughs> apartment. They're playing in between songs. Uh, yeah, that was a song by Dizzy Gillespie. What do you think called Con Alma? We're gonna do something now by Philip 
put the, and the drummer goes, somebody's smoking pot in the club. My dad goes, nobody would smoke pot, Garrett. And they're scanning the club. They don't say anything. Then my dad goes, oh, fuck. He runs upstairs, opens the apartment. It's completely covered in white. I've turned the oven on. I burned up a pound of weed. And he looks down. I'm four years old. And I'm looking up going, hi, dad. I'm, oh I'm completely goodness. stoned out of my brains at four years old. So that's the setup, basically. Uh, everything else makes sense from there. So that's my get that out of jail free card. Hysterical. <laughs> so the first time you get high, do you get high with your dad or or no? No, that... no. I, I started, uh, you know, they put me ahead a year in school and school was still boring. It was so boring. It was so slow. First day of trig, it's like, I got that. And then we studied it for nine months. It was just awful. Everything was so rudimentary to me. And um, so I just was, I started skipping school and playing records, going back home and spinning, listening to music, getting high and listening to music. And that was the whole, you know, I inhaled music for a good, you know, seven or eight years, seven or eight years of the best music that's ever been created. I mean, this this would have been... You know, 69 through 1980, you know, think about all that music, you know, Jethro Tull and Elton John and Earth, Wind and Fire and Cat Stevens and Bill Withers and uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And yes, and I lost you. I'm not hearing you. Sorry, I hit the thing by mistake. Yeah. I'm older than you, so I got to hear all those guys play in their heyday at the Fillmore East. I don't, and, oh, I don't know if you're older than me. I'm 65, so. Oh, we're, okay, so we're, I'm 67, but so right you're in right. there, kind. But I was like 13, 14 going to the Fillmore East. I don't know if those guys were coming to Denver. No. Were you going to no. concerts when you, no. No, 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 I lived in Michigan. It was like the hinterland, so. <laughs> but by the way, we looked fabulous. We look anyway. <laughs> so, so CJ, so, so what do you want to do with it? So you want to be a music, you want to be a musician right away. Totally, That's the thing. Totally. So, and, and what do you, what do you think when you're a little, what do you want to do? You know, it? I really didn't know. I just know that, uh, and this is, <laughs> I got to tell this story. So uh, I got a scholarship, but to Michigan State University, I, I found a way to get in there. Uh, it was just a slight scholarship. It wasn't completely paid for but it would have been a classical scholarship. And I didn't want to play dead people's music. That was the last <laughs> thing I wanted to do. I, was the last, I didn't want to do it. And my dad was really pushing me to do it. Uh, I don't even, my dad didn't, didn't even want me to be a musician mm -hmm. because he knew how hard it was, how hard it was. And so that summer uh, I snuck into a club and I was 17 when I graduated. I snuck into a club and I saw a uh, mostly black horn band called Sunquest. Horn and band? Were a horn band, you know, funk horn. band. Funk band. I thought you horn. said horn band. A horn band. Well, <laughs> that, that comes later. I'll tell you about that. Um, and they just blew me away. The lead singer was built like a linebacker. He was gorgeous and sang like a bird. And the, it was just amazing. And I, I went and bought after that all the, all the funk records I could find and started schooling on funk on my Fender Rhodes and got a Mutron with a wah-wah sound and everything. And later that summer, I'm supposed to go to college. Uh, I, I'm playing this club with my little jazz trio. And I look out and there's that singer in the back of the bar, only black guy in the bar. I grew up in a pretty much all white town. And there's that guy listening at the, oh yeah, 
watch this shit. And I click on my neutron. Did a whole solo and everything. I got done. He's gone. I thought, how could he walk out on this performance? I can't believe it. So I got pissed off and I, I finished the set and walked off the stage. He's standing right there and he puts his finger in my chest and he says, y'all playing with us now. Wow. So I blew off college wow. and got on a yellow school bus with a 10 piece, you know, black punk band. And there were two Jeffs in the back. And didn't you look fine? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I was like, I looked, I was probably 120 pounds and looked like I was 13 years old. You know, wow. And anyway, there were two Jeffs in the band. And my name is actually Jeffrey. So we ah, how do what do we do you know? cj so aj there was a race driver named aj foyt back then and uh this guy was the worst driver in the world so he's got to be aj <laughs> bj was black black jeff <laughs> cj ladies and gentlemen caucasian jeff Caucasian. <laughs> that's what it stands for <laughs> oh my god that's hysterical now is it true? I, I think you have big C, little J. Do you do it that way? I really no. like it. Oh, you don't. No, that's, that's a fallacy. That, wow. uh, that's what when I first signed up for Facebook, it wouldn't let you put two capitals. So that's all that is. That was See, that, really that long like ago. I, I think oh. it's kind of, well, I think oh, maybe I'll go with that. Maybe I, I'll I go with that. I think it's kind of cool, actually. But, I, but anyway, you'll always be <laughs> Caucasian Jeff to me now. It's fine with me. I, I wear it as a badge of honor. I mean, what I learned in that band with those guys, and, and then BJ was a music aficionado. He turned me on to Gil Scott Heron and, and Frankie Beverly and the Barcades and Funkadelic and Earth, Wind and Fire and Cool and the Gang and all that stuff. And of course, every night we play, play that funky music, White Boy. They put the spotlight on me. I, you know, do my White Boy solo. It was amazing. There was sometimes where I was the only white guy in the club, you know, and it was, and I grew up in an all white town. So this was just the perfect, perfect. Uh, okay. Now I'm thinking into, since you're, since you lived in Michigan and you loved earth, wind and fire that you must've known Allie Willis. Did oh, you know Allie? Mm -mm. You didn't know Allie. I never, ever met her. Wow. Isn't that bizarre? That is real because she would have loved you. I mean, and she did so much to raise money for Detroit and for Michigan, the music scene there. And and I wasn't aware of all that until uh, towards the end. Mm. And uh, so many friends of mine used to go to her house, that crazy house of hers. Oh, and, yeah. And I just missed out, you know, that's so uh, Allie brought amazing. a few of the musicians from Earth, Wind and Fire, Larry Dunn and stuff, and they played in my living room about 12 wow. years ago. Wow. Yeah, that yeah, was, was a big crazy. Larry, big Larry Dunn fan. Uh, but I, but so anyway, I, I yeah. kind of became a local, you know, I was kind of like the keyboard player in my little area there. And I started, I left that band, got in another band, got left that band, got in another band, left that band, got in another band. And we... Well, how were your Chicago. parents with you dropping out? Oh, of oh, oh. So, so, and by the way, I sold the car my god dad got me for graduation, and bought a bought a mini mode with it. And he of was, I was, he, he disowned me. What? He kicked me, he kicked me out. He kicked me out. Yep. Now, I would have thought of all people, he would have yep. understood this. You, you think that? What do you think I thought? <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, I'm I'm not throwing him under the bus because my dad, uh, he would stand up and do a toast and he'd say you know this kid was always right and i was wrong and you know i i, I he's apologized so many times publicly to people 
Yeah, he, I, I ended up being like, he was so proud of me. Uh, he, lived, what I well, did. he lived to see you have a lot of success. So. Oh, he sure did. Oh, he saw me at Carnegie Hall and, oh. you know, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it, it was great. So, but it was tough at the moment because he was my hero. And here was the guy telling me. And so he disowned you because he wanted you to go to college. Was that the yeah. thing? Yeah. He wanted me to get a regular job with a pension, 401k. It's like, did, but did he have a regular job? Oh, no. So he married the local weather lady. Oh, up in Saginaw, Michigan, when after he divorced my mom, she had four kids. So there's my brother and I and four kids. That's the end of his music career. Oh. I don't know what he was thinking. You know, it was a wonderful family. and I'm glad I got to meet him and everything. But it, it put out that was the end of his music career. I mean, uh, so he got a job at GM in this new field called uh, data processing. Wow. And quickly rose to the absolute top to become the top programmer at GM. Wow. And ended up being kidnapped out of GM by a guy that founded a company called EDS, Ross Perot. He he saw what my dad did immediately. My dad became the superstar computer programmer, ended up becoming the CEO of EDS Malaysia, moving over there. So what's weird is I'm really in deep into computer, you know, programming and and synthesizers. Which is very, and that, yeah, that's very good for a keyboardist to have yeah. that to have that math kind of thing. So I really took my dad's two skills and went right down the middle. So it was a perfect setup. How long did it take you to have success that he respected? Uh, so that's what I was going to get to. So we okay. we went to Chicago to make a record with this band. Mm -hmm. and uh ronnie hernandez and sweet energy ladies and gentlemen <laughs> tip your bartenders and waitresses and remember a motel spelled backwards is let them <laughs> anyway <laughs> that was so cheesy so much fun though anyway uh we went to the studio where the band sticks was recording and that was oh, you wow. know a big big deal yeah and our engineer was sticks producer so we cut basic tracks i think for four days and then we had we had four days for overdubs, for synth overdubs and stuff. So I did the whole album in one day. I overdubbed the whole album one day. The guy came wow. out and he goes, where the hell did you learn how to be so good at this? And I said, this is my first time in a recording studio. <laughs> wow. I'd never, never, never been with a band and overdub, you know? And he said, okay, you got to move to Chicago. And so he, he called me about eight months later and he said, there's an opening in this rock band there. And I went down there. There must have been 40 guys auditioning for this band. And I would think I was number 17. I got done and they said, the audition is over. I got the gig, moved to Chicago. We recorded some songs in a studio that during the day was a jingle studio. And I got to see what these guys are doing. I was watching these studio musicians. And I was a huge Toto fan. Like those musicians were the, that was it for me. Luke and Paige and Steve Picaro and I Jeff just, Picaro. I both. just met Steve on Saturday night. What a oh lovely God. man he is. I Maniac. love him. I love Maniac. him. Maniac. Unbelievable. Nobody like him. Um, and I just that's when I knew I've got to be a studio musician. I don't want to be in a rock band. I want to be a studio musician. And, you know, they said, yeah, kid, there's like 35 keyboard players here. There's, you don't have a chance. Uh, within... I think a year and a half, I was the number one guy there. Not trying to brag, but that's the truth. 
And I was. I know you know all my friends. Seven years there, I saw the pictures of you and Lee. I (laughs) I love Lee, and uh, and I'm sure you you have to know Will Lee if you were doing all this. Oh, he's a dear. I love him. I've known him for forty years. Uh, Such a total sweetheart, and there's you can't find a better musician on the planet that's done everything. I saw him with the Brecker Brothers when I was eighteen. Yeah, (laughs) you know. Yeah. Yeah, he's a dear, dear friend. Both those guys are dear brothers. But uh, so so you break into to session work. How old are you when this is going on? 22, 23. Your father has to be proud of it. He has to. So that's what I was getting to. So it gets to I'm doing five or six sessions a day. I've got two keyboard rigs. I've got a carnage guy, got a carnage guy. And I'm playing at night. Also got a gig at night with a 12 piece band. Yeah. What kind of music are you playing? You mean at night? Yeah. It was this amazing club. It was the most beautiful nightclub you've ever seen. There's a guy named Rich Melman who uh, owns restaurants all over the world. And he built this place called Rupert's 33 Club. And he put together, he, he hired a musical director to put together a 12-piece band. And it was every kind of music you can imagine. There were six singers. So wow. we'd go through, we do Chaka Khan, we do Dolly Parton, we do... So during the day, I'm, uh, you know, at seven in the morning, I'm doing a country session. At 10, I'm doing, uh, I'm with the Chicago Symphony. At 12, I'm reading fly spec solo piano. At three o'clock, I'm doing a sound design. And, you know, this went on and on. Go home, eat some food, get in the car, and then go play on a 500 chart book. Jesus. And I did this Are for Are you writing any music yet, CJ? Uh, at night, I did, yeah. But I'm not, I didn't know enough to, to be a songwriter. I just enjoyed writing and, and are, are you, you're you're not really composing yet, or you're starting to, or I was always composing, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was even when I was seventeen, I was writing stuff. But anyway, I started making really good money Boy. back there, yeah. And the problem back then is making a lot of money uh, in about 1985, when you're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that became it became a wild world, and it got to the point where I just thought. I, because I got really good at it. I mean, I could read anything. I could play anything on piano or or whatever, but I also was programming my ass off because I'd stay up all night and learned all the, I, I got every synthesizer when it first came out. I was there when the first DX7 Are came out. Are you playing accordion also? I think I've seen no. a picture of you. No, I, that's I've another seen... story. I learned, okay. I, I was forced to learn that for a Joe Cocker song when I went on tour with him in 94. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. So anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll buzz through this. Uh, uh, I started, but anyway, started making all this money and, and all the, every session's an hour long. So you're burning, 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 burning. I got so fast. I got so fast. And I decided, you know, I didn't get this good to make the sound of shrimp flying through the air for red lobster. There's gotta be something more. And my mentor there was a guy named Dick Marks and he was the king of jingle producers, the, the num- undisputed number one. His son was Richard. Richard Marks, and his son had already made a record in LA, and he says, "You got to go out to LA." And and and, and I said, "I want to go make records." And he goes, "You got to go out and, and work with my son." And so he called his son and said, "You know, you, you got to work with this guy CJ." And he said, "Dad, I'm here in LA. There's a thousand keyboard players. I don't, I don't need this guy." And he says, "Well, I want you to work. Do something with him." So I met Richard, and he played me a cassette. He got. He says, "I got this song." It's not going to go on my record. 
I might use it for a movie soundtrack someday, but it's not definitely not going on my record. And I listened to it and I said, don't give this to anyone else. You got to promise. I know exactly what to do with this song. So I made a demo. He put a vocal on it. Is this the first producing you're doing? No, I didn't produce this. I was just okay. an arranger. 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 Okay. And, yeah. So uh, uh, he didn't want to put it on the record, but the producer, David Cole, played it for some of the record company guys and they freaked out. What the, that's your, what are you talking, this is your single. Because that's not even going on my record. Everyone, and finally, Richard put it on the record and it was right here waiting, <laughs> which was his biggest song ever. And that and, was the and first- And he was not even gonna put it on his record? No, yeah, yeah. He was trying, you know, he was, he had a really rock sound and that mm -hmm. song, I mean, what you hear on that song is basically almost all me. There's a nylon guitar solo in the middle, but it's basically, it's my demo. Wow. It's my demo. And so the record company, they're thinking we're going to put big drums on, on it and everything. And Richard's like, no, this is going to stay just like this. Wow. So the fact that it had no drums, it really went against the grain of everything that was on the radio, you know, and it created kind of a sound that I've heard people steal a lot you know, through the years. But anyway, that was the first song I did in LA. And all of a sudden I'd pick up the phone before caller ID. Hi, my name's Phil Ramon. Hi, my name's Desmond Child. Hi, my name's Sona. You know, now I'm doing sessions in LA and, and walk in A&M and there's Luke sitting there and there's Sklar and this would have been 89, you know? Wow. And so I ended up arranging the entire record, um, Richard's entire record. So that was my gateway into, and then during that record, we did a song, Richard wrote a song for Loop, and that, I ended up doing some arranging on that, I believe, and that's when I met Loop, and that was off and running. Okay, so I don't even know in, in your list of credits where to start, like how these relationships started. Prince, okay, Prince, how did that happen? Okay, Bobby Columbi, uh, he was the drummer in Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and mm -hmm. he, uh, I worked at Sony at the time. Uh, it was working. They had an art, artist named Martika, and it was her second album. Mm -hmm. And they had a song. They the Prince kind of bailed on, and I don't know what happened. He, he got something got screwed up, and they were looking for someone to kind of do something around this track he'd done, a beautiful track. And I guess they tried, I don't know, nine, ten, eleven guys, and Prince wasn't happy with anything. And uh, I did it, and he flipped, and so did Martika. And uh, this is the way I remember it, or that I've, I've heard it, because I never met Prince during this whole thing. So uh, I did this whole orchestral thing and this whole spacey orchestral outro. It must go for two minutes after the song. I just kept going. I thought they're never going to use this. Well, the whole thing ended up on the record. Wow. So Prince, so Prince contacted me again. There's another song on the record, do you play B3? And it's like one of my favorite things to do is play B3. So I put this B3 soulful B3 organ and he doesn't know my history would, you know, CJ. <laughs> and he wrote me an email that I lost. I don't know where it is. I used to have it on my wall. He said, hey, brother, that's the best organ I've heard since Sly and the Family Stone. <gasps> and I wrote back, hey, brother, just so you know, I'm a skinny white boy. So that's kind of my Prince story. That's uh, wow. Uh, never got so, to meet him, but, wow, but he was a fan, crazy. you know. 
Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Okay. So uh, Barbara Streisand, that's an interesting credit. That's interesting. That was another one. Uh, they had, it was on Back to Broadway and they had a, a few piano players had played this track and it was Foster producing, Humberto Gatica engineering and Barbara mm -hmm. over at, uh, God, what was the studio? I can't remember. Anyway, I walked in a pretty intimidating situation to walk in, but you know, yeah. I was so, but, but I didn't, get, I never got intimidated at that stuff. I really, I was pretty cocky. Not cocky. I was just confident. I knew I could pull it off. So I walked in and they had the chart there and they had a big screen or TV back then sitting next to the piano. And I said, what's this? And they said, oh, that's a conductor. So they hit play. And I, I think I was the seventh guy on that one. And I started playing and this conductor is doing this theatrical conducting. He's waving his arms. Everywhere. And I said, stop, stop, stop. Turn that fucking thing off, please. They're like, well, how are you going to know where to play? I said, turn her up. I want to hear her breathe in my oh. ear. And look back and she's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And I got the gig. I, I aced it. I aced it, got the gig. I ended up playing another song, I believe, on that record. And she called me in to work on uh, Mirror Has Two Faces. I did some cues for that with Marvin Hamblish and uh, a couple other things with her. Yeah. And and it sounds like you had a nice relationship with her. I did. Oh, you know. oh, oh, there's 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 more to this story. <laughs> well, you know, she's you know she's very demanding, and uh, uh, let's just say I just didn't feel like that was my way of working. You know, I had done enough of that. A lot of the jingle producers were very. They had come up through that Toscanini kind of thing, you know, the fire and brimstone. And, and I just had had enough of that. And she's not mean or anything like that. She's just very demanding. And I just, I don't know. It wasn't my cup of tea, but she sang so great. Amazing. I'm so glad I worked with her. Um, and very sweet. And, um, but we just never worked together again. Um, but, you know, then you work with somebody like uh, Dolly well Parton. And, yeah well i spent eight months working with dolly and that was crazy that was one of the craziest experiences in my life i was supposed to do two songs on her record and when i met her i had my little dat she walked into the studio i walked in with a dat i did take a breath before that like holy shit and then i went <laughs> i looked down at the dad i thought wait a minute they're all here to hear my work i'm the one with the power Wow. So I did an attitude shift, walked in. I said, put that on. And I said, do you like it loud? She goes, hell yeah. And I grabbed her chair and I pulled it right up next to me. And before the first verse was done, her arm is on my forearm. And I looked over and she's got tears in her eyes. Done. It was over. And wow. she said, gets done. She goes, I want this MF to play on my whole damn record. I want him to do my whole record. They said, well, we've got so-and-so. You didn't hear what I said. I want this MF to do my whole damn record. And we ended up, everybody left. And so we started talking. I said, well, let's record something. She goes, well, like what? I said, well, you know, I wrote charts for everything. She goes, you didn't even know you'd be working. I said, I wrote charts for everything, Dolly, just in case. There's a piano vocal one. Wow. It was called Bl Blue Me. It was a blues song. And I said, let's go do that right now. 
So we, they put her out in the booth. I went to the piano and we started playing and she says, stop, stop the tape, stop the tape, stop the tape. What? She goes, I want to be right here next to CJ. And she puts the mic right. I mean, I could reach out with my right, right hand and touch her. And they said, well, there'll be leakage. She goes, you didn't hear what I said. Get the hell out of here. Hit record. And one take. And we were wow. looking at each, we were looking in each other's eyes and it was just instant connection, instant. We were so connected. It was crazy. So we spent, I love this. It was for a movie called Straight Talk that we worked on. We made an album that went with it and we did the soundtrack and uh, um, we did some traveling. And I was going to say, who did you travel with? So this was a lot of studio work. Um, I know you played with, I know you were out with Tina and with Joe Cocker, right? You, my first one uh, was with. Uh, well, interestingly enough, I, I just saw the the immediate family movie. Have you heard about that? I I saw it when it was just it's, it's before amazing. it was. It, it's it is amazing. It's the best music doc I think there uh, it's, is. It's, it's amazing. Fantastic. Yes. And Denny Tedesco is a dear friend of mine. Actually, we have a a project going right now with a TV show we're working on to pitch, and uh, that's fantastic. kind of my main focus right now. Is that I'm working for myself now. I've spent so much time working for everyone else. But anyway, uh, I when I had done Right Here Waiting, we did a showcase at the Roxy. And at Soundcheck, the sound guy comes up. because my, my thing is, you know, I can play. Lots of guys can play. I, my sounds are my sounds. Mm -hmm. You know, I put them up against anything. That I'm very into my sounds and the way they fit with the track and everything. And the guy came up and he goes, I've never heard sounds like this in my life. He goes, who the hell are you? I said, I'm CJ, and I've just moved to town. He goes, my boss would love you. I said, who's your boss? He said, Don Henley. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. And, and End of the Innocence had just come out. And he goes, he's auditioning keyboard players for, for his tour. And I thought, this is it. I just did right here waiting. Now I'm going to go tour with Don Henley. This is perfect. Went to the audition, and I think there were 20-some guys back to this thing again. Got a call back, went back again, got called back again. And it came down to, I think, five of us. And we played End, End of the Innocence, the Bruce Hornsby track. And the last audition, uh, Don goes, you ready, CJ? I said, yeah. And he goes, count it up. And I, somebody taps me on the shoulder. Hornsby's standing behind me. And the drummer's counting the song up. And I just flipped in the bird. And I just thought, I'm going to shove this, you know. How dare you stand behind me while I audition? And I just, you know, I played it like so good. It was amazing. I got the gig. So they management called. They said, you got the gig for the Don Henley tour. One thing, Don wants you to shave your beard. So did That's you say odd. that again? That's odd. Yeah. Wants me to shave my beard. Yeah, he wants you to shave your beard. I said, well, yeah, I'm not going to shave my beard because somebody asked me to. I'm not shaving my beard. They said, well, you know, it's a prerequisite to the gig so well no i'm not shaving my beard and i hung up i knew they would call back no they didn't i didn't get the gig because i wouldn't shave my beard i never understood what that was so a couple weeks later katie seagal from married wow. with children yeah katie and, I, and by the way now i'm i'm basically suicidal i'm like my career's over I, I sabotaged my career all i had to do, do, you, was do shave you regret my beard. do you regret were you regretting that you said no at that point, I was. Okay. Let me finish the story. Okay. Okay. A couple of weeks later, Katie Seagal 
from Married with Children, who's a fabulous singer and a fabulous person also, is at a party, and Don Hanley's there. And she says, he asked her how she's doing. She says, I'm putting a band together, and I've lost my keyboard player, musical director guy. I need somebody. You know somebody. He goes, I know somebody really good. He's great, but he's got an ugly fucking beard. <laughs> so Katie Segal calls me, right? And she sends me back then. It was a cassette. This would have been, again, 89. And I took the, I wrote charts for all, God, 20 songs. I demoed everything. I made demos of uh, the, I think the top six one that she wanted to start rehearsals with. And she said, and I wrote charts and she said, I'm sending my drummer over to meet with you. So, okay. I had an office at Sunset Sound at that time. So I, I opened, uh, <clears throat> knock at the door, I opened the door. Who's standing there? I go, are you Russ Kunkel? He goes, yes, I am. <laughs> Holy Russ. shit. You're in the, what, what the, he comes in and sits down. Oh my God, this is what a treat this is going to be. So he goes, what, what do we got? And I said, well, let me play this. I hit play on this demo. It gets about one minute in and Russ goes, stop, stop. I go, what's wrong? He says, hit, stop, stop. I go, what's wrong? He goes, nothing's wrong, but what am I listening to? I said, well, this is demo. He goes, who did this? I said, I did. Who did the drums? I said, I programmed those. Who did the bass? I did the bass. I said, Russ, that's all me. I did all that. You did all what I'm listening to. I go, yeah. He goes, who wrote these charts? I said, I did. He goes, okay. I got two guys I want to introduce you to. You got to be kidding me. Christopher Guest. <laughs> he Russ is the one who introduced you to into Spinal Tap. That's how I got the Spinal Tap gig. Wow. And ended up scoring all Chris's movies. And the other one was Greg Ladani, Toto's producer. So I shave my beard. I end up on this probably not too fun tours. You know, I love Don Henley, but he's he's pretty much a stickler. You got to play the same thing every night. And that I probably would have lasted two weeks on that tour. Mm. And for some reason, my intuition told me if someone's going to ask you to shave your beard, they're going to ask you to do something else that you don't want to do. You know, interesting. You know what I mean? So I followed my intuition. I was actually right. And it ended up setting this whole chain of events and that's what i did uh did a one-nighter with spinal tap with russ playing drums and i just said no one is ever going to play keyboards for this band ever again except me and sure enough the band got inspired and we started sounding good and i was creating all these sounds and they said let's make a record so 92 we made uh break like the wind <laughs> and that's when i met danny korchmar danny produced a track on that uh, that's when I met T-Bone Burnett. That's when I met a lot of guys on that. And then anyway, that became my first tour. We did a world tour with uh, Spinal Tap. And uh, then I started working with Greg Ladani, and that would have been 93. And uh, the engineer, it was this was at Steve Vai's studio. And the engineer there was friends with a guy named Chris Lord Algae. And he said, man, you got to meet my friend, Chris Lord out. You guys are just hit it off. You got to hit it off. And uh, I got a call from Chris. He's working with Joe Cocker and he needs someone to come over and just find out keys. Just find out keys. That's all they want me for. Well, I sit and I'm going through the song. I go, wait a minute. Why don't we do this re-intro? Do two bars and let's cut this off. And one little key change here. And then I start doing these things and I find the keys. And we record these just piano and vocal. And Joe's like, okay, I want that guy. So I ended up arranging Joe's record in 1994. And Joe asked me to go on the road. So did 43 countries with Joe. 
Wow. You know, I thought I was going to lose all my studio work, but I didn't give a shit. And it was, it was really a first class tour. It was great hotels. I was um, going to say, what was he like? Was he, was he fucked up all the time? How was he to tour mm -mm, with? Mm -mm. There were moments and Joe would, Joe would drink and there were, there were bad nights, mm -hmm. you know, there were bad times. And sometimes we got the blame for that because we hung out with him after the show and he wouldn't mm -hmm. stop. But uh, no, uh, especially in the studio, he was always there, always right on. One of the most phenomenal musicians I've ever worked with. And Joe and I had a link together that was just, I, I'd see him sagging a little bit on stage, you know, after like playing six nights straight and right. I could send, I could send shit up his spine. I'd see him perk up and, you know, we had a, we had a thing. I mean, he'd introduce the band. He'd say on bass, da -da -da, on drums, da -da -da, on guitar, da -da -da. and then he'd go, and on keyboards, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, the inimitable, the irreplaceable Mr. C.J. Vance. I mean, it was such an honor. He really loved me, and we had a huge connection. And we went on to work on a bunch of more records from there. And I ended up producing him in 19, or sorry, 2004, and did that tour also with him. And he had stopped drinking by then. Wow. Yeah. Just a dear man. And so um, amidst all these pl playing and recording, you're doing pretty much all of Christopher Guest's movies, right? You're scoring yep. them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that started in, God, I think 93. So that we did the Cocker tour. Then I got back and there's a uh, waiting for Guffman, you know? You know, so I, did, I told Fred Chris, Willard you're directing. Was... I said, I said, you're directing a movie. I got to do the music. He goes, you do that? I'm like, are you kidding? Well, I, I'd never scored a movie. <laughs> so you just, okay. So how, so you just decided you could do that. I, my bow did the same yeah. thing. Just said, oh yeah, yeah, I can do that. And just oh, did it. Well, everything I play all the time, people go, it always sounds like a film score when you play. So I, was, I knew I could do it. And I was a pretty much a scholar of film. And what's interesting, since I was a latchkey kid, get home from elementary school, and parents wouldn't be back for two or three hours because they were still working. It, it was the golden age of TV and comedy. And I just grew up in all that comedy, Mad Magazine, National Lampoon Magazine, all that comedy. I mean, I became a scholar of comedy. I never thought it would be something I'd use later. Well, <laughs> all of a sudden I land in the epicenter of comedy. There couldn't be a bigger epicenter of comedy than being with that troupe. Matter of fact, when I was 13 and that, you know, it, the, my town I grew up in was a jock, you know, uh, I didn't fit in at all. I mean, I, I was skinny and too small for sports and I was wearing army pants and smoking weed and big long hair. <laughs> and I walked by the local store there and there was a National Lampoon magazine. Do you remember the one that had the dog on the front and they had the gun to the dog? <laughs> and it said, buy this magazine or we shoot the dog. It was the, and I went, what the hell is this? So I bought it and I went right to the park. I rode my bike to the park and I thumbing through it. And I found this article. I was reading it going, oh my God, whoever wrote this, there's somebody as fucked up as I am. This is amazing. You know, I love this. I got to find out who this is. I get to the end of the article. There, I was 13. The writer of the article was Christopher Guest. Oh, Wow. So now here, Destiny, don't shave the beard. Now I'm scoring his movies. 
touring with Spinal uh, Spinal Tap. Are you kidding me? Unbelievable. There couldn't be anything better than that. Nothing better. And working with this troupe of comedians on these shows, you know. Fred uh, Willard was a, fr- a friend of mine and oh. Ed Bagley is a friend of mine. And so oh, what a people. sweetheart. Yes. Ed's just, there's nobody better, nobody smarter than Ed. Yeah. You know, all of them, we became dear friends, all of us. We just became like a family. And Eugene, oh, Eugene, uh, we did one pilot called DOA and I never knew what happened to it. And Chris and Eugene wrote it and I said, so Gene, you know, whatever happened to DOA? Ah, ah, DOA. Well, wow, that was a while ago. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't um, funny. <laughs> wow. And Catherine, you know, she's like oh a sister my to me. God, is she's she like brilliant. a sister, and she's so fucking talented. And Jane. You know, we keep in touch all the time. I saw Michael Hitchcock the other night. And, you know, we're still a, a, a pretty tight-knit family. It's a pretty exclusive club to be part of. And Parker and, you know, I could keep going on. J- uh, Jennifer Coolidge, we keep in oh, touch. My She's great. Lord. And look at her career. She's doing amazing, you know. Wow. Amazing yeah. what's going on with her. So is and, there... So one, one thing I just wanted yeah. to say, it's so weird because this is just a side, a side gig for me. This isn't really what I do, you know. But it became kind of a thing, you know, it became a thing. I didn't know. It was just a yuck for me. But it became a thing, you know. And is is there, and then you and Harry Shearer did this whole other we did thing. The, we did the Derek Small solo album about three, four, year, four years ago. And that was huge uh, with, with full orchestra. <laughs> and it was, it was the, uh, if somebody said, what do you, what do you do? I would just go play that record. You know, I mean, we we worked with Donald Fagan on that record. We worked with uh, uh, Steve Vai, Joe Satriani, uh, Larry Carlton, uh, uh, the Snarky Puppy Horns, on and on and on. That was an incredible project. And we did uh, three live concerts with orchestra, with my parts that I wrote for orchestra. And COVID hit. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Well, because of COVID, I got to have Judith and Harry on my show at different times. Oh, they're fabulous. And Just had dinner with them the other night. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Your people. You know, we, I was watching, um, oh God, now I'm spacing on it. Oh, the, the moon, the, the Apollo, Apollo 13. Yeah, Harry's, Harry is in, plays a... No, you're talking about... Uh, uh, not Apollo. Right, the, the right stuff. The right stuff. The right stuff. Yeah. And Harry's like this young. I mean, it must have been his first movie or something. He's like yeah. a kid in that movie. Yeah, playing the yeah. reporter. Amazing. It's interesting because I've got a, a my side thing is I'm deep into aerospace and the whole Apollo missions and airplanes. I flew airplanes for a while and. It's wow. an interesting side thing, yeah. So before we go back to the music, so do you have time for TV? Do you, have you been binging during the, the pandemic? Really Did you don't. binge anything? Not really. You don't. I really just... Well, because Christopher's wife is doing some pretty amazing work. She's oh, she's unbelievable. She's a force the bear. of nature. Yeah. The bear oh, I didn't know she is... was in The Bear. Oh. oh, my God. One episode that will rip your kishkas out. She's going to win an Emmy for it. She's oh, my God. She's a force of nature. I've known her for, you know, what, 30, 34 years or something now. She's incredible. 
Yeah, it's just, just an amazing she's, woman. Amazing woman. She certainly is. All right. So let's go back to let's go back to your your discography here. Um, so I just saw last week uh, we went and saw Ringo and the All Stars and, you know, had never done it. How fun is that? Met mm -hmm. Ringo in London recently. That was such a gas. And and Luke is there and, and they're all there. So and Greg well, Bissonette, uh, dear friend, Greg dear is, friend. He is a monster. And when he and Ringo go, it's the best stick for stick. Yep. That was absolutely crazy. And you will never meet a more dear human being in your all your travels. And by the way, Michigan boy. So. Anyway, <laughs> so, go ahead. So how uh, so how did your Bing, your 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 Ringo your Beatles experience? How did that happen? How did you come to so work with Ringo? Phil Ramone called me. I told you, uh, and uh, he called me to work with a band called Boy Meets Girl. Mm -hmm. They had a huge hit, and we did this amazing record. And by the way, they uh, George Merrill is the George and Shannon uh, the, the duo Boy Meets Girl. George is a great keyboard player, and Phil goes, "Oh, I got to have my guy." On this and his name cg and they're like we don't need a keyboard player goes like i gotta have my guy so it was kind of weird i was kind of uh not wanted at the beginning but once they heard what i was doing mm. we we made it this great incredible record just monstrous one of the best things i've ever done and uh the guy the a and r guy i remember his name bob buziak got fired and they shelved the record and it was never released Oh, one of those wow. stupid records. And this, this, you know, we were talking before we went on the air about how I just get so pissed off at the business and, and the, the ignorance. And uh, it's so fear-based that it just, it drives me crazy. I'm, I'm not very tolerant of it. I probably would have had a lot more success if I was able to shut my mouth, but it, ju it just drives me nuts when I see injustice like this over such petty stuff you know nobody wants to take responsibility because if the record's a if a record uh isn't a success it's on them and that's what everybody did in the 60s and 70s dj put this on this is great this is what i believe in but such chicken shit stuff the record company was too chicken to put it out and my god george and shannon put their lives and phil into this record and me and no one ever heard it so anyway phil said i'm going to make it up to you and you're going to work on everything i do so we did, we did David Cassidy after that. That was an wow. inc incredible experience. And uh, so then he, he says, I got something. I got two songs with Ringo I want to do. So I I kind of searched my head. Who is Ringo? What is he? What do I want to make him? And I decided he's like the court gesture, the traveling circus kind of thing. And I made this track that was so cool. It was really, really cool. And so he brought Ringo in. Ringo walks in. And Ringo loved it. Ringo just loved both the things I did. So we decided to put a little scratch vocal on it and work on it. And Phil walks up and he goes, he goes, I just got a phone call. I have to leave. I got to leave for an hour. I'm leaving you with, with Ringo. <laughs> I go, okay, don't worry about it. He goes, whatever you do, don't fucking ask him about the Beatles. I said, Phil, I'm not going to go, what was it like? But, you know, no way. <laughs> Jesus, give me a break. Get out of here. Go, go. So we worked for like 15 minutes and I... I, and I said, what do you think of the track? He goes, oh, I think it sounds fine to me, you know. Uh, I don't know, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know, what do you want to do? He goes, you want to hear some good Beatles stories? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, yeah. So he starts off and he says, uh, stop. Oh, unbelievable. So he told me they'd come out of like the riot house, the Hyatt, 
you know, on sunset. And they'd run to the limo and the first thing, the limo would speed off. And the first thing they'd do would be to empty their pockets to show what was shoved in their pockets. And it's pol nude Polaroids and drugs and phone numbers. And they'd compare all that, joints and everything. And uh, he goes, yeah, we used to wear these jackets that had a little Naira. I said, Ringo, I know the jackets, okay? You don't have to over-explain here. Don't worry about it. So we kept going and talking, kept talking stories. And then it got to... You know, I said, so man, I got, so what happens when, when, when John gets killed? What happened? He goes, oh, he was my brother. I mean, he got into the other stuff. I don't want to repeat some of the stuff he told me. The very, very deep stuff. But uh, you, I mean, John is deep, but it's stuff that's more personal. Um, but he said, you know, I miss him every, every day. And I said, okay. So now you walk on stage and you're the guy. And they, they, ladies and gentlemen, Ringo Starr, and you walk out. What's that now? And he goes, the love, the love. It's just, and his lip starts quivering. It's just, it's just sometimes it's too much. And so I grab him, I'm hugging him. Oh. The, door the door opens and Phil Ramon walks in. <laughs> and he looks at me like, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, he, he start, he start, he's the one that he started it. I didn't, Phil never believed me. He never believed because me. Because he that. knew that if Ringo started talking about the Beatles, he was going to get emotional and get no, he, or, or get angry. I don't or, know. I don't know what he was going to do, you know? So, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we, we were making that record and Mark Hudson was one of the background singers. And then he says, you know, there's a limited edition uh, Ringo print at this store in Brentwood. It's 850 bucks. You should get it and get a, a Sharpie and get him to sign it. So I drove over the 850 bucks. This is 90 one or two I mean, those years were pretty nuts i was working with everybody it was i don't know how i packed all this in now my brain is kind of wow so anyway i went and bought it and i got the the sharpie and i put it in the trunk of my car and i thought uh i can't i can't ask him to how do you it. ask ringo to sign something i mean that okay go ahead i just didn't want to do it it just didn't want to be that guy because now we i mean got to the point where i was grabbing him and giving him a noogie grabbing <laughs> the top of his head and you know yeah. i love you it know, yeah we were just like two little 13 year olds hanging and having a great time he's a lovely <laughs> lovely man and so uh it was september and it was super hot and we were wearing those stupid uh mc hammer pants those kind of parachute alibaba pants <laughs> with the elastic top right super wide that was the thing then and Ringo goes, oh, I wish I had some of those. All I bought was me fall clothes. And so, okay, so that happened. So one weekend, I, I go up to Zuma, go to the beach, and on the way back, there's a van on the side selling clothes. And they're selling the beach pants. And I did some, I said to myself, something you don't say to yourself a lot. I think I'll stop and get Ringo some beach pants. <laughs> so I stop, and of course, I got to get the little boy size. No. I'm trying to judge like, okay, I guess that'd be, is this the boys? Okay. <laughs> so I buy five pair of these beach pants for Ringo. All right. So I show up at uh, Westlake for the session and there's Phil and I walk in and Ringo goes, Hey, how was your weekend? I said, Oh, you know, I went to the, Oh, hang on. I got something for you. So I ran to the car, came back with a five pair of beach pants and he goes, you got these for me? I said, yeah, I thought you did. You said the beach. Pants. He goes, Oh, and his lip starts quivering again. And he starts crying again. I hug him. Who walks in? Bill Ramon. Ramon. <laughs> he goes, what the fuck are you doing with my artists? Why do you make him cry all the time? I said, we're fine. And Ringo goes, he's fine. He's fine. And Ringo goes, 
if there's ever anything I can do for you. And I go, you know, yeah, there is something. I went to the car. I brought this thing. We went in the, in the lounge at Westlake and we had rolled it out, put four ashtrays on it. And it's a picture of the first session, first Beatles session. And he goes, do you mind if I tell you a story about this? And I said, fuck you, sign it. And now Ramon's ready to kill me. And Ringo started laughing. He got it. I was just kidding. Of go course. Ahead. So Ringo tells this whole story. He goes, you see, George's head is turned sideways. He's got a black eye. He got in a fight the night before. And John is so angry. And he was ready. And this is their first session. And the photographer doesn't even know who they are. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so they've got Ringo. He should be sitting at the drums. He's sitting like this way so they can see the band. Like where the hi-hat should be. It it, it looks normal when you look at it. But once he explains it, you go, okay, that's completely fucked up the way he's sitting. And on the floor, Tom, there's maracas and a tambourine sitting on the floor. I said, why would you have those sitting on your tambourine? He goes, oh, I didn't put them there. Just before they took the photo, the photographer ran up and said, these will make him look more intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) So then he wrote to CJ with love, you know, Ringo. He doesn't sign anything anymore. So. Wow. Okay. So speaking of pants and rock stars. Uh I I heard you tell a story. Oh, boy. It just so happens that about two weeks before he passed, I got to see Jeff Beck again. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. In my life. He had the, he had the best time. He 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 was he was all right. So you have a Jeff Beck story. I have. <laughs> it's I don't even know what to say. So this would have been eighty one. I had just moved to Chicago. I, I'd yet to start doing uh, sessions, and I was in this rock band called Trillion. It was a pretty high end. They called us the Toto of Chicago, uh, which was a big compliment. Wow. And we got we got asked to open for Jeff Beck down in Carbondale, mm-hmm. Illinois. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like the biggest thing I've ever done in my life. So we drive down to Carbondale and uh, uh, Jeff Beck does a sound check. And then, of course, the backup band gets the, the crumbs. We go out there for, you know, we get a half an hour to do our sound check. So now we open the concert with our, we're set up in front of their set. And there's Jeff. Beck are you a, are you a huge Jeff? Are you a like I'm a Jeff Beck maniac fan? Are you a fan when this is oh going my on? god? Oh god, he's up there with Beethoven. Are you <laughs> yeah. kidding me? Yeah, no, there's, there's <laughs> no no finer musician has ever walked the planet. Yeah, in my opinion. So anyway, uh, we played our set. We got the oh god, I got a bird stuck in here. I've got a bird stuck in my house. Oh no. Yep. How do you get in there? How do you get stuck I, in there? I've got sliding doors all around my house. Aww. Hang on, ladies and gentlemen. You open all the doors and get the spurt out. Aww. We're about to hear a Jeff Beck story. And then, and CJ, it's getting close to six o'clock and I'm going to honor our time. So after Jeff Beck, I'm going to let you go. After you get the bird out. You can't even hear me because you're walking around your house somewhere. People are, are sending up love. You're getting you're getting a lot of hearts before you uh, go. Uh, <laughs> Where are you? This is like this is like bird salvage. We can't hear you. I lost part of my part of my thing. 
And by yeah, the way, so I have to say that I met okay. CJ because uh, Nicole Venables dresses our hair. I don't know if I started said that. You did start with that. I did start with that. Okay. All, All right. So, so tell I, us the story. So I've opened the whole kitchen up and closed the doors in between to see if this bird can get out. So Aww. yeah, I don't want to freak it out. So this happens a lot. My whole house opens up on both sides, all glass. So fabulous. Sometimes I get birds in here. Crap. <laughs> anyway, so Jeff, Jeff Beck. So now Jeff Beck starts the concert and it's just mind-blowing 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 we're sitting at the front of house console on some folding chairs watching oh my god and he's about five or six songs in and i gotta pee i've got the <laughs> notoriously the world's worst bladder and i'm just i'm holding it i'm sitting there like oh god i gotta pee i gotta pee and i but i can't i can't leave because i'm listening to jeff Beck. miraculously drum solo <laughs> so here's so here's Simon Phillips lights are flashing so this is back in the day when the PA started at the floor stacked up right and this will come into play in the story so I got my backstage pass I go right by the PA and show the guy my pass went back to our dressing room take a leak I come back and the drums are still and I go behind the PA cabinet where the audience can't see and there's a cooler I grab a beer Take a sip, and there's Jeff Beck, literally eight feet above me, right there, uh, smoking a cigarette, where nobody can see him. He's got his back to the audience, back to the PA cannon, but he's right there, eight feet above me, and he can't see me because the lights are flashing, and I can't believe it. And again, the drums are. <laughs> he takes a cigarette, drops it, goes to step on it. There's nothing there. He falls to the cement in front of me. Jeff Beck falls eight feet to the cement in front of me. I'm the only person there. And I'm, what, 22 years old? I can't, and I ran over and I go, Mr. Beck, Mr. Beck, and he's writhing in pain, rolling on the floor. Mr. Beck, are you, are you okay, Mr. Beck? Sir Beck, are you all right? And he rolls Sir over. Beck. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. <laughs> and he rolls over and he goes, I ripped my fucking pants. And I could tell he'd been drinking. That's probably what saved his life. Right, because he rolled into it, right? He does, yeah. And so his pants are ripped from the crotch all the way down to the knee, and he's basically jiffy popping, you know. <laughs> so oh, uh, that's how you don't want to see your that nice way to meet your hero, right? Yeah. So so I go, Are you okay? And he goes, Yeah, but I ripped my fucking pants. And I go, Okay. So I pick him up with this uh, adrenaline, grab him, and the minute I grab him, I go, Oh my God, he's exactly my fucking size. He's exactly so the a, same time. He's like a skinny mother. Are you that skinny? I'm, I'm skinny. You. I'm that skinny. Yeah, I'm a skinny wow. guy. I got my, my dad's talent and my mom's legs is what I like <laughs> to say. So anyway, uh, so now I'm doing the hobbling with him. And the, now the drums are still going. So now the roadies are looking for Jeff. They run backstage. They think I'm kidnapping her, him or something. <laughs> and he goes, no, 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 he's okay. And I said, tell Simon to stretch the drum solo. So the, the drum rotary walks up and does the rubber band thing. And Simon's like, he doesn't know what's going on. He's like, well, I'm killing it. He says, oh, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> so I get Jeff back to my dressing room. And I, I had a wardrobe This is drum. one long drum solo. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So I grab a pair of pants and I hand it to Joe. I turn around and he's standing in his BVDs. And he must have had this underwear since he was 15 years old. They were like yellow, just like worn out. It's like just how you don't end with the skin, legs like mine sticking out. I'm like, oh, and I handed him the pants. Like, I don't want to look at him. And he goes, 
I ain't wearing no fucking purple pants. And I go, wow, you talk about beggars being choosers. <laughs> really? And he had on these black satin pants. And I went, oh, shit. And I reached way back in my wardrobe trunk. I had a pair of black, kind of like almost identical. Crazy. He puts them on. And then he turns around, and does the, you know, how's my ass look in the pants thing? <laughs> he goes like, how do they look? I go, you, you look good. You look good. Great. So now the roadies take him. I put my clothes away and I hear. And I go, oh my God, Jeff Beck is playing in my fucking pants right now. You've got to be kidding me. So I can't wait to get out and tell the band. Run, 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 run all the way up there. The band's sitting behind the console. The minute I get there, one of the guys in the band looks at me and goes, where the fuck did you go? You just missed the greatest drum solo of all time. <laughs> I fucking love and it. I go, no, 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 no. I got a little story for you guys. You see those pants? He's what? wearing my fucking pants right now. Wow. So Jeff threw a big party for me after the show and we became friends and we, he, I got him on the uh, uh, Spinal Tap record and then, then on the Joe wow. Cocker record. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What yeah. a great story. Oh, <laughs> oh, my God. CJ. All right. You know, I could listen to you all night long, but I'm I'm going to honor it. I know you have a 615 dinner and you're going to make it. You're going to have to run. But you're no, gonna don't worry. I, I can go. If you got another question, I can do another one. That's OK. All right. Well, all right. So my last question. So tell me about Toto and, and Luke and that whole oh, thing. That's a, that's, a, that's a good way to close it. Um, I have no higher respect for any musicians ever than that group of guys. And when I heard those records, uh, I mean, first of all, I love Luke that's playing and Jeff Percaro is the greatest drummer, studio musician that ever lived, in my opinion. But David Page and Steve Percaro as a pair of keyboard players Page has got the all the New Orleans blues. Uh, he's got that style of piano that he does, and he plays the B3, that rootsy kind of stuff, and, and he's the writer. And then there's Steve Ricardo, mad scientist with his modular synths and everything like that. And I thought, I want to be right down the middle of those two guys. Ah. So I became a scholar of Toto. I learned everything, all their songs. And matter of fact, I showed up at one of their rehearsals, and they were playing Child's Anthem. And I said, I walked over to Paige. I said, I think you're playing that wrong. He goes, what? And I sat down and played the whole thing. He goes, we are playing it wrong. He goes, when's the last time you played that song? I said, that would have been 33 years ago. I've got this kind of photographic memory. So wow. anyway, I ended up meeting them through Greg Ladani. I was doing the Dolly Parton record and he was producing Toto also. And they heard some of the tracks and said, who's this guy? on these tracks and Luke knew I had been working with Luke and uh, I played on King of Desire and then uh, I remember I was on a David Crosby record and I walked in and Don was was producing and there's this set of drums I said who's the drummer he goes Jeff I go Percaro he goes yeah I'm like holy shit my first session with Jeff Percaro door opens he walks in the coolest dude ever James Bond, the drunk, walks in, he goes, eh, CJ fucking Vanston, let's see what all the fuss is about. I go, no, <laughs> dude, don't, don't do that to me, don't. <laughs> so we get this take going, and, and Don wants it perfectly in time on the piano with no click in the intro. One of the things I got from doing all those jingles is time. 
because we always played the click. So a lot of keyboard players push to me. They rush and stuff. I've, I've got really good time. If I have anything, I've got really good time. So uh, uh, I play the intro and, and Jeff's drums are facing me. And now we get into the take. But what he doesn't know is I'm a fucking scholar of David Page. You know, he doesn't know that. And I know his groove. He doesn't know that. And he's looking at me. He's giving me like the Gene Krupa. Yeah. Oh, and we did this take together. It was just, I mean, we're locked in, just completely locked. We got done. Done was says, that was great take. And David Crosby was singing. And he says, uh, why don't you come in and listen? Jeff spins around on his drum stool, lights up a cigarette, turns around. And I'm waiting. I'm just shaking. I'm waiting for him to, you know, walks right by me and walks out of the room without saying a word. I thought, how the fuck would he walk out of the room? Count to 10. Door opens up. <laughs> he comes right over. He grabs me. You motherfucker. Oh, my God. You're me. Come on. Come on. And we went in and listened. And we're listening to playback. And he takes his watch off. He's got the, that old Casio with all the buttons on it. <laughs> and the intro is going by. And he's going, boom. Boom. And I go, I said, it was a timer. I said, what are you doing? What are you doing? He goes, checking you out, motherfucker. I said, how am I doing? He goes, that's as close as anyone's ever gotten it. You want to smoke a joint? Wow. So we went, out, we went outside and uh, we were both in the Civil War and we talked about the Civil War smoke joint. He got in his car and drove away. I never saw him again. That was the, never worked with him again. Never oh. saw him again. He died soon after that. So anyway, uh, Luke was doing a solo album. This is way after that. And he called me to, to write something together and we wrote something in you know, an hour that was great. And he goes, well, maybe you should put some other keyboards on. So I started overdubbing on this, this whole album it was called uh, all's well that ends well. And uh, I saw him, we, we went to the Hollywood bowl together on the way we were in his Porsche and he, he says, you want to hear some of the mixes? I said, yeah, and he put them on. And I go, what the hell is, this sounds like dog shit. What's going on? <laughs> and the engineer had put my keyboard through like guitar amps and stuff and distorted it. I go, no, 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 this is awful. And I happen to have the, no, no, he happened to have, I said, do you have the original demo? He goes, yeah, it's right there. He put it on. I mean, it exploded out of the speakers and he slowed down. And he goes, you're producing my record. And so I produced that record all as well that ends well. I mixed it because I had learned from Greg Ladani and Ed Cherney and Chris Lord Algae and Al Schmidt. And uh, he asked me to do his second, the one after that was called Transition. I'm as proud of that as anything I've ever done. Wow. And the guys in Toto heard that. And I saw David Page at a party and he came over and he goes, I want you to help us do our, our Sergeant Peppers. And that was uh, the Toto record I produced. So we had a meeting and uh, uh, there's the band sitting there and I go, guys, I'm flattered to be here. And, you know, I, I need to know what you want me to do on this record. And Paige put his hands on both of my shoulders and goes, we want you to do everything. And I go, I know how to do that. <laughs> and wow. that became that record, you know, 10 months of working on that record. And to me, Toto, after Toto 4 went down a kind of a different, I don't know, there was a, it was a different vibe. It got kind of mythical, gothic with uh, 
some of the stuff got jazzy, kind of baked potatoy and stuff. It was you know great music, but it wasn't how I thought of Toto. I said, guys, I want to get back to the sound of Toto Four. So they said, this is we, and we did, and everyone said this is going to call, be called Toto Five. Is what we're going to call it. And someone looked up and they realized this was their fourteenth record. So Toto Four, Toto Fourteen. They had never named another Roman numeral. So wow. then the total 14 out of the honor of like, this is the closest we've gotten to total four again. And we did that record and it's the, one of the highest honors of my entire life. Wow. All right. And yeah. by the way, all because I didn't shave my beard. Okay. You know, you know I, I was going to ask you about this and, and we're going to, we're going to close on this. Yep. I, I assume that you do believe in destiny and fate and, I do. and that things happen for a reason. Clearly. In the universe, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yep. And so, so the universe has in store for you. Denny Tedesco couldn't be a greater person to collaborate with. So you guys have something in in the hopper, and um, but I hear there's like a Spinal Tap thing that. Yeah, we're making a new movie in September. <laughs> and, and by the way, everyone says, "Oh, you're doing the Spinal Tap sequel," and I said, "No, it's actually called the finale." <laughs> wow. Because they're never going to do it again. This is it. So. And it's it's brilliant. Uh, they've been writing, and I've been hearing about what they're doing. It's absolutely brilliant. So, well, I for one cannot wait for everything you've got cooking, CJ, uh, Caucasian Jeff. It has <laughs> been my great, great uh, pleasure and fun to uh, spend this time with you. Thank you so much. Well, uh, you're very welcome. I know I go on and on with these stories, but uh, I've been very fortunate to to work with many artists, but uh, you know, I never did this for the money. Uh, it's the experiences, and uh, I've lived more than anybody could ever ask for in my life of the great experiences, and I cherish those. And I truly believe that's what makes you a musician is your experiences and knowing yourself and creating a sound and a voice from that. These kids come out of college, they're amazing players, but you gotta live, you gotta go, you know? So anyway. It's that, it's that thing with Barbara Streisand going, it's that it's, it's that's it's all about 100%. that it doesn't matter if you can shred it doesn't matter if you right. can play all the fucking notes it's making yeah. somebody go if i can make barbara rise and cry i've done something for the, for the there world there you go that's my closer <laughs> have a wonderful dinner thanks so all much right. cj great you're awesome i love doing this it was great i'm so glad thank you take care bye everybody bye.